Welcome to another re-recorded episode. You can access not only the original, but the other original episodes for just $1 a month. Maybe even more if you feel extra supportive today. So without out of the way, let's get into the episode. Irene Garza was born November 15, 1934 in McAllen, Texas. McAllen is about 70 miles from the Mexican border, and my in-laws live there, shout out to them. Her parents, Nicholas and Josefina, owned a dry cleaning business, and when Irene was 15, she and her family lived on the south side, which I guess meant was the quote, undesirable side during this time, and then they moved to the north side when her parents' business took off. Irene and her sister Josie were the first Mexican-American twirlers in the history of the McAllen High School. Irene then became the first Mexican-American drum majorette. A drum majorette is a female leader of a marching band. Today, we just call them drum majors. In the 48 Hours episode about Irene's case, Irene's cousin Linda said, quote, Irene was far more than just a pretty face. She was a trailblazer. Irene would go on to make major differences around her for the rest of her life. She graduated high school and then decided to go to college, end quote. Irene graduated high school and then decided to go to college. Irene attended the local Pan American College, one homecoming queen, and was the first person in her family to attend and graduate college. In 1958, Irene won Miss All South Texas Sweetheart. After college, Irene became a second grade school teacher and worked with the disadvantaged and poorer students in McAllen. Irene's cousin Linda, in that 48 Hours episode, said Irene used part of her salary to buy her students' school supplies. Irene was raised in the Catholic Church and was devoted to attending and being a good Catholic woman. She went to confession every Saturday and church every Sunday. She was extremely happy in her life and did everything she could to help people, and everyone in the town and the church knew who she was. According to an article called The Unholy Act by Pamela Koloff, Irene was elected secretary of the PTA at her elementary school. Irene was very friendly with her neighbors and the people she worked with. In 1960, she was living with her parents, and I believe Irene had a good relationship with them by all accounts. Wherever Irene went, she would regularly check in with them. On April 16, 1960, Irene asked her mother if she could borrow the family car to go to church for confession and said she would be back soon. It was Holy Week, which I believe ends with Easter, and Easter was the next day. According to 48 Hours, Irene called her childhood friend Sylvia that night to see if she wanted to go to communion with her. Sylvia wasn't home, so she left the house alone around 6.30 p.m. towards the Sacred Heart Church by herself. 12 blocks away from their home. That night, many people took notice of Irene and remembered her later on. Several people later described what Irene was doing at the church. The Unholy Act article said one person noticed Irene making the sign of the cross. Another said she was kneeling by herself in a pew. Some said she stepped out of the line to confess, like she suddenly had to go. And someone said Irene put a white veil over her head. However, no one saw her leave and she never made it home that night. Her family waited until 3 a.m. and then called the police to report her missing. The family found the family car still parked down the street from Sacred Heart. Two days later, a man named P.F. Miller was walking on McColl Road when he came across a high-heeled shoe. It was a beige pump for a left foot with its heel tap missing. Irene's family had confirmed Irene wore that shoe to confession the night she vanished. 
Police and volunteers searched around the area for any more evidence. 70 plus people were out looking for her. A co-worker of Irene's then found a black leather purse lying in the middle of a field north of the shoe found. It looked like it was thrown out of a car. Inside was Irene's driver's license. Investigators tried to dust for fingerprints, but there were none. And remember, this was before people even thought of DNA as evidence. Farther north, investigators found a piece of white lace in the brush. The items scattered made it seem like someone was discarding evidence. With every piece of evidence found, hope of finding Irene alive diminished. Investigators continued to look around McColl Road and the area surrounding it, as well as Sacred Heart. According to the Unholy Act article, police canvassed the 32 square blocks surrounding the church. They went to every house, had divers go into the surrounding canals, and two border patrol planes flew around. The National Guard was also called to assist in the investigation. Investigators had hundreds of leads, along with the crap confessions people do when they are either drunk or they have sick minds and think it's funny to insert themselves in investigations. One lady called and said she was Irene. She said she was kidnapped and being held in a town over. The lead turned out to be a hoax and it wasted everyone's time. According to the Unholy Act article, in the morning of April 21st, five days after Irene went missing, someone called the McAllen police and said there was a woman's body floating in the Second Street Canal, which is an irrigation canal. The woman was fully clothed, although her blouse was unbuttoned and her underwear was missing. She was badly bruised on her right side and had two black eyes. The autopsy said she was beaten with a hard object and her cause of death was suffocation. She was raped while in a coma and might have been held captive before dying. And they said she had likely been dead for three to four days. Irene's brother came to the morgue and positively ID'd her as Irene. Back at the canal, police found an imprint of Irene's petticoat on the banks, tire tracks, and a heel print from a man's shoe. Some hair was attached to the print and police thought maybe the killer drove to the bridge and threw her body in the canal. They determined the shoe size to be 8 to 11, which I feel is not that helpful considering that that is the average man's shoe size. A couple of weeks later, police drained the canal for more evidence and found a photo slide viewer, which I will link a picture on the blog just in case anybody doesn't know what that is. The police put a picture of the photo side viewer and a description in the newspaper for anyone who knew anything about the viewer. Rumors circled. Irene vanished after confession. She ended up dead not too far from the church, and some people thought the killer might have even been a priest. Businesses, city commissioners, and donations came in to help solve the crime. Police didn't hesitate and interviewed everyone. The Unholy Act article said the police took statements from 500 people, including, quote, Irene's friends, family members, exes, co-workers, the people that saw her that night at the church, on the way to the church, sex offenders in the area, and prisoners in El Paso, end quote. 61 people took a polygraph test. The police interviewed anyone and everyone Irene knew or had come into contact with her in the months leading to her death. Police went to the public about any information on the photo finder and someone answered. A man named John Fate, 27 at the time, sent a note to the police claiming the photo viewer was his. John had bought it the summer before and the police were suspicious and continued to interrogate him. John was a visiting priest at Sacred Heart and came from San Antonio. He was at Sacred Heart for pastoral training and performing baptisms. According to the Unholy Act article, John was seen as aloof, a loner, and didn't seem to be a priest because of faith. And compared to other priests, he was just plain weird. John was assisting at Sacred Heart, taking confessions, and taking part in Midnight Mass the night Irene disappeared. Prosecutor Mike Garza, no relation with Irene, said in 48 hours that John told multiple stories about that night. A 
At first, John said he didn't hear Irene's confession, and later he said he took Irene's confession in the rectory. For those who don't know, Vocabulary.com defines a rectory as the housing that a church organization provides for a minister or priest to live in. Most rectories are conveniently close to the church. Mike Garza said John pulled Irene out of the confessional, saying she was too good to confess there, and took her to the rectory around 7.15 to 7.20 p.m. 48 Hours also interviewed a friend of Irene's named Anna, and she said John had pulled her away from confessional before. On the night Irene disappeared, Anna said she remembered Irene seeming confused by John's insistence on going with him. John had also told the police Irene felt embarrassed to say her confession in front of other people, so he took her aside. According to the Unholy Act article, the people in line after Irene noticed John was away for a long time. And from my understanding, John was back at the church for midnight mass, and then Father O'Brien, John's literal opposite, and some others went to get coffee. Father O'Brien told police John had scratches that went from his hands to the top of his arms. So now, John is the last person to see Irene alive and is now the main suspect. John had excuses for everything. Also, witnesses reported he had gone back to the rectory a lot for petty excuses, such as broken glasses, he needed new clothes, and cigarette breaks. John got locked outside the rectory and had to climb up the Salkin balcony, which is why he had scratches all over his arms and hands. According to the Unholy Act article, John said he felt terrible about Irene's disappearance and told police he spent Easter Sunday offering two morning masses, a late afternoon mass, and several baptisms after. Irene's parents were there at the church when he returned later to pick up some items he left behind, and he told them he knew nothing about her disappearance. John was troubled about the fact that he was the last one to see her, and he drove around for a while thinking about it. He never explained about how his photo slider ended up in the canal. In 48 hours, Mike Garza said police dug deeper on John and found out he was sent to McAllen from Edinburgh, a town over, because of an incident with another woman three weeks earlier. I'll just say her first name, which is Maria. Maria noticed a man staring at her from a car before she went to communion. She also saw him again in the back of the church. As she knelt in front of the altar, a man from behind her tried to clamp a rag over her mouth. She screamed and bit his finger so hard she tasted blood and the man ran away. John also lied about the story when police questioned him about the assault. He said he left town an hour before the attack and said he was badly cut on his finger that got caught in the machine. He had also driven up to another woman named Patrice in his car and asked if he could take pictures of her dressed in black by the cemetery. These three women all looked the same and had very similar features. According to the Unholy Act article, John took a polygraph test and seemed to enjoy the questions police asked him. The polygraph was suspicious and the examiner said he felt John was lying when he denied killing Irene and attacking Maria. Also, the church seemed to send John to different places if he ended up, quote, misbehaving. Like I said earlier, John was sent to McAllen because of the incident with Maria. The church also sided with John after Irene's death. According to 48 Hours, Mike Garza said investigators found a letter from August 1960 between church officials. The letter basically said that if they went to convict John, a Catholic priest, it would look bad on the church and the presidential candidate JFK. I read the letter and it literally says that. The sheriff, who is also Catholic, said the case was weak and would try to get it dropped. They were trying to make it go away and would have rather protected a possible murderer than tarnishing their religion. I don't want to make any excuses, but America was built on hating Catholicism. And also, it was also a huge part of culture in McAllen and the surrounding area at the time. 
and even now, and people then felt the need to keep quiet. People were afraid to speak up for fear of excommunication and because of gossip. And not that it was a valid excuse to cover up a murder, but it was really difficult back then and it still is like that in some areas of the United States and Texas. During Mass, according to the Unholy Act article, a friend of Irene stated that the priest said it was impossible for a priest to commit such an act. The church leaders told the churchgoers not to talk about it or even think about it. And remember how John left San Antonio to come to McAllen? It turns out John was a fugitive and police had arrested him in 1961. Because of that report about Irene's case and Maria identifying John, he stood trial for attempting to sexually assault her. The case became a mistrial, but in 1962, John pleaded no contest to avoid another trial and was fined $500. Apparently, there was a plea that said prosecutors would drop the murder charges if he pleaded guilty to the sexual assault charges. After the case closed, John disappeared from the area. The church has sent John away to a monastery for disturbed and or troubled priests. Unfortunately, Irene's parents died sometime in the 90s without ever knowing who killed Irene or getting the justice they rightfully deserved. The case remained open, but it obviously wasn't a big deal to anyone besides family and friends anymore. People forgot about Irene and her untold story for years. According to the Unholy Act article in 2002, an 88-year-old man named Dale Tachney called the San Antonio police and said he was a former priest living in Oklahoma City and had information about Irene's murder. The police in San Antonio didn't know anything about Irene's case, but Detective George Sadler listened to Dale and didn't know if he should believe Dale or not. Detective Sadler took down Dale's number and told him he would call him back. Dale had relayed everything over a two-page letter to the San Antonio police. In the letter, he said he didn't know the name of the woman, didn't know the date or the city, but he knew John. Dale was a monk in 1963 in Ava, Missouri. It was assigned to counsel John who had, quote, an unusual story. Everyone knew John had killed a woman and he was there to become a monk. According to 48 Hours, John had told Dale everything over the course of many months. And this is the story of that night. After confession, John removed Irene's blouse and fondled her breasts. John then took her to the basement and left her there, possibly tied up. John later moved Irene from the rectory to another location. The next day on Easter, John put her in the bathtub and put a bag over her head. John told Dale he remembered Irene saying she couldn't breathe and then left. When he came back, she was dead, so he felt the only thing he could do was dump her body in the canal. In 48 hours, Dale said he felt relief relaying the information he had. Quote, I covered up the evidence. I'm sorry for what I did. End quote. Texas Ranger Rocky Milliken visits San Antonio on some other business and brought up Irene's case that his colleague Rudy and him were going through. They ended up talking and Sadler handed over the letter from Dale. Jeremio then got into touch with Dale to confirm the story. Jeremio got to work trying to find John. Turns out he left the priesthood in 72 and lived a quiet life in Phoenix. John got to live his life. He got married, had children, and worked as an insurance salesman and a spokesperson for a Catholic charity. John was 69 when Irene's case was reopened. 48 Hours interviewed Renee Gurria in 2013, who was the DA in 2002. In 2002, Gurria refused to charge John based on Dale's account because he didn't believe John confessed to Dale. Dale had a lot of details wrong, like I said before. Jeremio went on and tracked down Father O'Brien, whose details matched a lot of Dale's. Father O'Brien had also searched the attic in the basement of Sacred Heart on the Easter Sunday looking for Irene. He said he followed John when he drove back to San Juan, which is like 10 minutes away, and lost John at a red light. Later in the summer of 1960, O'Brien said he confronted John and then he told him everything about what he did to Irene. Gurria also refused to charge John based on O'Brien's accounts because O'Brien had dementia. 
According to the Unholy Act article, in 2004, Guerrilla took the case to a grand jury but only provided audio tapes and transcripts from Dale and O'Brien. They couldn't indict John based on what they said, and basically from everything I've read about Guerrilla, he just didn't want to prosecute John. I think he was lazy or something, or maybe he was scared to be excommunicated from the church, and he just said the evidence was weak. So I don't think so. Two people confessed about what John told them. The monastery knew John killed a woman. At the time, Ricardo Rodriguez was a chief and Guerrero told him he had to close the case. Rodriguez wanted to close it so that the files would be open to the public, but Guerrero said that it was still an open case, meaning Guerrero wanted to open it up and forget about it. O'Brien died in 2005. The case would have to rely on his recorded testimony. Eventually, in 2014, Guerrilla lost DA to Ricardo Rodriguez, who according to 48 Hours, promised to look into the case. Rodriguez reopened the case and began working again. In February 2016, John was arrested and brought back to Texas to stand trial. At this point, he was 83 years old and supposedly had stage 3 kidney and bladder cancer. According to KGBT-TV, the judge gave John a $1 million bond. John's defense team tried to have a change of venue. Having been denied, his hearing was pushed back from September 11, 2017 to October 30th, and then to November 6th, then to November 28th. John's attorney was defending another case or something and rescheduling led to more rescheduling, according to the Monitor. Finally, on December 7th, 2017, after six and a half hours of deliberation, John Fayette was convicted of Irene's murder and sentenced to life in prison at 83 years old. John was incarcerated in a unit in Huntsville, Texas, and ended up dying February 12th, 2020 of natural causes. I would barely call two years in incarceration justice. John had a whole lifetime and ended up dying only after 20 years. Irene's parents died never knowing what happened to Irene and who took her life. Guerrilla strangely covered up the details of the murder and refused to look into Irene's case despite confessions that could have at least been looked into. His excuse that they were old and had dementia was true, but those confessions were the first leads they had in decades. The case could have been solved in 1961 when police interviewed John. And I'm so glad we finally know what happened to her, but this is still a huge disappointment with police. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and please stay safe out there, guys. Thank you for listening to Crime Cloud. If you would like to access my Instagram, go to at Crime Cloud Podcast. And for my Twitter, go to at Crime Cloud Pod. To find the blog, go to crimecloudpodcast.blog. To email suggestions or corrections, use crimecloudpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening and supporting the podcast. Thank you.